The biggest bet I ever made in my life would have been a life-changing bet. I made a bet of $425,000. The win would be $1,250,000. I was sort of trying to get out of being a gangster, which I'd been at that point in a number of different ways. And I thought that was the thing that was going to be able to make me be legit for the rest of my life. I, I could stop being a gangster. I flew into Santo Domingo in a private plane that was arranged for me and landed on a cane field. I had my bodyguard, and they had these two enormous Samoan guys. And they had their money, and I had my money. So I made the bet. It was for a middleweight championship. A guy named Stevie Collins and a guy named Reggie Johnson, both good fighters, both guys who didn't punch very hard and both guys who were never knocked out in their entire careers. So it's going to be a close fight. I mean, you know, this is, this can go either way. I've got Reggie Johnson barely ahead by one point. 96, 985. Oh, man, my life is flashing before my eyes because I'm either going to lose more money than I ever envisioned losing or I'm going to make enough money so I'm out of this thing. And I lost. I just thought I made a bad decision and I was wrong. And that, and that really, that was the end of it. But it was a fight that was a real fight between two real fighters, or at least I always thought it was a non-fixed fight. And only recently have I started to rethink and wonder if I just got completely outplayed by somebody who really, really knew the game. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderbilt. Today's episode, Sesquipedalian, featuring Charles Farrell. Charles, I know you're in Puerto Rico, as you told me, but I want you to get a hold of me some which way I'm setting up this thing with Don. I'll set it up for Monday or Tuesday. you're an outsider you're you know for for whatever reasons and there are all all kinds of reasons that we can think of that we're outsiders if you add to that someone who lives on or outside the margins of the law and an antipathy toward authority you know which uh, i have to a great great extent probably an unhealthy extent those are probably the things that best define low-life culture Low-life culture is really a kind of affinity for the way disenfranchised people live. People who don't have anything, the kind of pleasures that they take, and what their options are, what the lures are for them. Hustling plays into that. It is seeing the world as either getting over or being gotten over. You're either a mark or you're playing people. 
And one of the ways I hustle is that I use language creatively. Okay, this is what you do if you're hustling to put yourself in an advantageous position. You speak their language, whatever the language is. It suggests a mutual sympathy, point one. Point two, you speak a language that no one else in the room can speak. The term is sesquipedalian. It means given to using big words. Words that people say, oh, what the fuck? But they didn't use phrases like, oh, what the fuck? So you have connected and you've elevated. Then you look to flatter and you look to exploit any insecurities and you bounce those things back and forth. And if you've done all of those four things, the chances are you're going to get pretty much what you want. I could get people's trust. And at that point, you know, I would in various ways take advantage of their trust. And that's really all I did for my whole life. I grew up in low life. The people I loved most growing up were in low life. I mean, that's part of my DNA. The challenge for me from now on is, and has been for years, is how not to hustle, how to behave ethically. I mean, it's, it's very, very easy for me to take advantage of people, and I have to work hard not to do it. You know, one of the things that you do when you don't have an education, if you're relatively bright, is you mask. You show your strong hand, you know, and I'm pretty good at that. I mean, there's, I only know how to do a few things, and that's what I show. I was born playing piano. I started to play piano at three, and I could play from the moment I sat down. I have a very bifurcated childhood. My father was a graduate of Harvard Law School, and my mother comes from a show business family as far back as we can trace. My maternal grandfather was a really, really great orchestra leader, great piano player. And since it was a family profession, it was understood that that's what I would do to make money, playing piano. You know, I was impatient. Uh, I really wanted to start my adult life. So that's what I did. I left home when I was 12. I dropped out of school very early. For a 12-year-old to be living on the streets now means something a lot different from what a 12-year-old living on the streets in 1964 and 1965 would have meant. You know, I, I lived in Boston, a particularly sophisticated and cultured town, and, and really not a dangerous town. But um, living on the streets made me learn fast. It made me aware of opportunity. So, for example, I found that I could get unbelievably high SAT scores. Now, I wasn't going to school myself, so those scores wouldn't do me any good. Except I realized that there was a real premium on being able to get great SAT scores. SATs, been, I don't know if this is still the case, where they were divided into two categories, English and math. Perfect score was 800 in each. And my ongoing guarantee was that nobody would get less than 750 for either one. Nobody would get less than 1500 And I'd get paid 500 bucks, which when I was 13 or 14 was, was a lot of money. So I did that a lot. I got started performing uh, in public in general by walking in off the streets 
to various hotels and various clubs and just sitting down and playing. And I could play. So, you know, I started out being the intermission pianist. And those were great gigs for a kid because you got to be an adult. You know, I would have to wear a suit and tie and show up on time. And, and the money was, you know, was good. Boston had a lot of mob clubs. They were terrible jobs, great learning experience because they were exhausting and the, the audiences were unbelievably demanding and you had to play a, a wide range of stuff. But some of these clubs were very, very tough clubs. The ones where the IRA kept guns, Whitey Bulger had something to do with some of them. There was a club in Lawrence, Massachusetts, called the English Social Room. I love that name, right? The English Social Room. You, know, you expect the little pinky to be up. The thing. And it was a whorehouse. You know, the mob owned it. And it was a club where there were no rules. The cops were all bought off. You could do anything you wanted there. Back then, musicians worked with strippers. They would use live musicians. And I wound up working with a famous stripper at the end of her life named Sherry Champagne whose whole thing when she was on stage was to try and get me to stop playing the piano. <laughs> and I would say to her, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you do. You know, I'm not going to stop playing the piano. I mean, I'm not going to freak out. And she would put my head between her legs. And, you know, I'm fine. I'm, you know. <laughs> anyway, one day at, at the English social room, a guy went into the men's room. Blew his brains out blood everywhere, all over the walls, every place. We had a 20-minute break, and we started our next set on time. So I did that for a long time. I did it from the time I was 14 until I stopped playing in public when I was 27. I started watching boxing when I was a kid. I'm 62 now. And I caught the very tail end of a really golden age of boxing. So I got to see extraordinarily good fighters on TV all the time. The first time I walked into a boxing ring, the thing that struck me more than anything was that it was in color, you know? That, you know, <laughs> that, that when they bled, it was, it was actually a color. And there was a lot more of it than appeared on television. And what I found was that I could read boxing in this very, very sophisticated way. There was something about the combination of preparing really well and then being able to improvise under circumstances where nobody really would improvise that I just found admirable. So as I got a little bit older, that led me into spending a lot of time in the gyms and betting on boxing, which I did well. From there, I wound up getting involved with people who wanted to bet on boxing. I got involved with the mafia in boxing because I was in Gleason's gym in New York every week. And both the Russian and Italian mobs would see me working, so they would just ask for advice. And eventually that, that expanded. They said, well, can you, can you come with us? Can you be with us? And I said, yeah, sure. I was pretty optimistic about it. I mean, they had capital. The first time I made a big bet, you know, and collected enough money for it to be a kind of transformative experience, I thought I might be able to do this for a little while. 
and have so much money that nobody knows about and then live exactly the way I want to live for the rest of my life. There's a kind of feeling that nothing can possibly stop you. You're flying into Vegas, you're flying into Atlantic City, and you're in a plane that you've essentially taken over, bringing in whole cards of fighters who were all undefeated, who as a group all win in the first and second rounds. These are young guys who are on the way up. That feeling is incomparable. It's like this ride is going to go smoothly and everything that we set up is going to work. And then I wound up getting involved with fighters. Around 1991, I became friendly with a guy named Mitch Bloodgreen. Mitch Bloodgreen, if you ever saw him, you'd never forget him. He's six foot six, about 250 pounds now. When he was fighting, he was about 225. Jerry curls way past his shoulders, a toothpick in his mouth all the time. He'd been the leader of a street gang in New York. He's called the King of Rikers Island because he loves going to prison where he's a celebrity. He has been arrested for illegal drugs, robbing a gas station, refusing to pay bridge tolls, and has had... He was a five-time New York State Golden Gloves heavyweight champ. Incredibly talented fighter. Tall, rangy, fast hands. Never off his feet. I mean, he fought Mike Tyson without training for him, when Mike Tyson was still Mike Tyson, and went 10 rounds without even being close to off his feet. And um, he got into a very high-profile street fight with Mike Tyson that he initiated. Who threw the first punch here? He did. He sucker punched me. <laughs> Two different stories about who, who won that fight. And I tried him. He ran for me like a little sissy. He ran for me. By that time, he's uh, Depends on who you ask. Mike Tyson said, I was scared to death of him. He said, he's, he's a big, big man. Are you going to file criminal charges against Mike Tyson? No, I mean, you know, in a situation like this, you know, I don't want for him, but why do that? Just say don't get mad, get even, you know? Uh, so he, I managed him. He was the first guy I officially managed. Mitch Prozgin was, was a good fighter, but he was an incredible fuck-up. The first thing that happened to him when I managed him is he got shot. Somebody challenged him on the Tyson thing. And Mitch, who's a big guy, slapped this guy. And the guy ran back into his house and got a gun and shot Mitch once in the Achilles tendon and once right behind the knee. So that put him on the shelf. But I was still his manager, and I still had plans for him. And it, it was something we knew he'd recover from. So I'm spending a lot of money on Mitch Green. And I bet Don King's director of boxing, a guy named Al Braverman, who was my closest friend in boxing, and a guy who literally saved my life once, um, that I would get Mitch Green back into the ring. Finally, he's ready to come back. And I put him in against a guy who was a career loser. They're guys who know how to fight really tough guys without getting hurt. And their fights aren't exactly fixed per se. It's implied and they infer that they're going to lose a fight. That's how they make a living. And so what they wind up doing is they go a couple of rounds and then they bow out and they're able to do it over and over again because they don't take a beating. But in the case of the guy who I brought in for Mitch Green, I didn't tell him to fall down. Mitch Green went out and he just stood there with his hands at his side, looking at who knows where, thinking who knows what. Didn't throw one punch. So the referee stopped the fight and Mitch Green lost on a TKO. 
I won Sucker of the Year Award from one of the, I think it was Boxing Illustrated or Ring Magazine for managing him. And the most money I ever made on a Mitch Green fight was the fight when he got into the ring where I won my bet with Al Braverman. Anyway, I did get him back in the ring. So that's the first time I went to the trouble of actually getting a license. And from there, that's what I did for a living for about a decade or so. If you're managing fighters, the meter's running. You're going to be spending a lot of money. And anything that goes wrong, you're still going to be spending the money, but it derails any income capacity. So, you know, you, you start to think in terms of shortcuts. You think, okay, well, I could move a fighter to a title shot by having him fight 10 or 15 tough guys and work his way up the ladder, during which any kind of thing might derail him. And he's certainly going to get hurt, and he's going to hurt other people, and there are all kinds of things that can go wrong. Or I can take matters into my own hands. There are a lot of different ways to do it. So here's the most common way. You speak in code. You go into a gym where there's a trainer or a manager you know pretty well. It's got to be somebody you know. You say, I've got my fighter here and I'm looking to get him some work. You say, he could use a few good rounds. Okay, so now we're talking about a fight that we know your guy is going to win and we know it's going to be my knockout. The guy on the other side will traditionally say something like, I have this other guy. He's a good fighter, which means he can make it look good, but he's not in shape. He's only good for three rounds, two rounds, four rounds. Okay, so we have the winner of the fight. We know that it's a knockout. We know essentially how long the fight is going to go. If you need to fine-tune from there, you can say, you know, I'm not sure if I want my guy to go four, in which case he can either say, well, I, you know, I said four, but my guy can't really go four, or I've got this other guy who really hasn't been in the gym at all. And you've just fixed the fight. So, then he got me a fight. Atlantic City, Taj Mahal, main event, the majority of fights are real and the majority of decisions and knockouts are, are legitimate but there's this machinery at play at every level of boxing the machinery has to do with figuring out how to move a fighter into money. Now, money can mean anything. It can mean to a title. It can mean to losing a title. It can mean to in contention. There was a whole code of behavior structured around being able to do that, fight fixing in various forms. Yo, Charles, blood. I need that fight, man. One of them Rather than that disappointing me, I found boxing immediately much, much more interesting because it worked in conjunction with what I already knew about the world. The trouble today is there are many honest people out there. That's why we're having problems getting across to these people. They're all fucking liars. There's an argument for fight fixing being bad, 
I mean, people are paying to see a legitimate contest and they're not seeing one. So they're being cheated. You can certainly make a case for that being bad. I, I have no problem with that. Um, I think I can make an ethical case for fixing fights. And, and, you know, again, I'm not going to say that my reason for fixing fights was purely altruistic or that, you know, that I'm an angel. Neither is true. But professional boxers fight for money. There's some pride involved. There's some ego involved sometimes. But, you know, they're trying to earn a living and they're trying to earn a living with very, very few other options. The majority of guys who get to the pros have one or two fights they get knocked silly, and they're out of it. But if you're talking about fighters who have a dozen or more fights, the prognosis is lousy. Bad things are going to happen to them. That's the truth. They're going to get beat up. They're going to wind up with no money, and they're going to have irreparable brain damage. That's going to happen almost all the time. Boxing doesn't hurt. You're not feeling the things that are happening to you while they're happening. So fighters are almost inevitably wind up neurologically damaged. It just happens, and it doesn't matter how good they were. I cannot see an argument to be made for not fixing fights on their behalf. You know, their lives are mostly post-boxing. There's the small picture, and then there's the big picture. And as much as I love boxing as boxing, and I really do love boxing as boxing, I I was drawn to it for what it is. The more you know about it, the more valid the argument becomes. And I think more than anything, this is probably the most important single thing. If you're in business, you're in business for the long haul in boxing, which means that your behavior in a strange way has got to be admirable. Because if you don't do the things that you say you're going to do, you're out of business. And sometimes worse. As that sunk in, my priorities changed. My first priority became protecting the health of the fighter to the extent that I could do it, which is not a great extent. You know, it's what can be done. And then my second priority was getting them paid. But is there any sense of guilt from your from your side of things? Because there's this hierarchy and they're obviously at the bottom and you know they're disposable. Like, do you ever feel for like the kid? Do you let them know or? It's a great question. No, it's a great question. Well, it, it, that's, it's sort of like asking, well, should they ban boxing? Um, that's not my business. And it's not my business to tell an adult what he, he or she nowadays can do. It, it's, um, you know, there's this kind of cultural hierarchy that we as informed, often, you know, white guys can can know best what disenfranchised people should and shouldn't do. I'm not comfortable with making that decision for anybody. And I, no, I, I can't do it. The do-gooders, the altruists, you know, the, the crusaders are almost, almost inevitably white guys of wealth and power. And uh, it's a kind of paternalism that I find incredibly offensive. And it comes from people who don't really even know what they're talking about. What happens to a fighter if he is slated in to lose and sometime during the course of the fight or even before the fight decides that he's not going to go along with the script? Depending on who's involved, who fixed the fights, the consequences of the fights, the, the, the stakes involved in the fights, 
the penalties for not doing what you're told can run anywhere from not being paid, not being paid and having a very, very tough time finding any work at all, to getting badly hurt, to getting killed. I had a fight that I bought that was a fixed fight. And the matchmaker tried to double cross me by taking all of the money and coming up with a guy who couldn't fight, which is not the same thing at all. I found out about it while the Star Spangled Banner was playing. And I went into the the place uh, where they were getting ready to do the announcements. And I said, I got to hold up. I got to take care of something. I went into the other guy's dressing room. Who's telling me to stop the, the fight? And I said, I am. He didn't know that the fight was supposed to be fixed. And I took him outside to the parking lot with his manager. And I said, I want you to watch me. This is what's going to happen. You better do exactly what I tell you. And there were consequences to his not doing it, which we won't talk about. And he put his hands up. And I'm no, I'm no fighter. I was in good shape at the time, but I'm no fighter. And I said, put your hands up. And he put his hands up. And I hit him as hard as I could. And I said to his manager, now you watch me. And I hit him again. And I hit him a third time, which bloodied his lip. And I said, when my guy does that to your guy, and he's going to do it a lot harder, the towel comes flying in. And it was the fastest knockout in the history of that state. And people loved it. Uh, I've had fighters who didn't want to take dives. That's fine. They don't have to. The Tyson fight was a real fight. Hi, I'm Mike Tyson. Watch me beat Peter McNeely on TCI Cablevision. Okay, we're talking about Mike Tyson, Peter McNeely fight. Tyson versus McNeely. Our main event is next. We are moments away from the much-anticipated return of the former undisputed heavyweight champion. The, the, the Tyson fight was not a fixed fight. Neither fighter was aware of anything going on. For Tyson, this is the first step on the road back to prominence. For McNeely, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, Tyson has been in jail for, for, for three years. Prior to going to jail, he's already dissipated terribly as a fighter. He's no, nowhere close to the fighter he had been, regardless of what how he was being promoted. He's self-destructing. Putting him on ice makes him much, much more desirable to the public. So Tyson, when he comes out, is, is the biggest deal in sports history. Everyone wants to see this guy, but you can't put him in with anybody who can really fight. So they figure Tyson doesn't have to fight for the title in his first fight. They'll pay to see him against anybody. So we're going to put him in against Peter McNeely, who can't fight even a little bit, but who's got a good record. It was the biggest fight in history because of Tyson. It doesn't matter who's on the other half of the equation. Thank you, Jim. It is difficult to remember when a non-title fight caused this much of a stir in an arena. We may be about to witness one of the greatest mismatches since 1961. I'm the one who actually brought McNeely to Don King through Al Braverman. I flew him in to make that fight. Peter McNeely is an interesting kid. He's a local to Boston. Keep laughing. Keep Comes laughing. From, from uh, Medfield. You're real funny, huh? Very game. If, you go, if any one of you rugged kid doesn't respect me, who would fight well, anybody? I'm doing what I've been doing for the last three months since we've been there. All kinds of courage. Going against a guy like this, 
You have a big dump in your pants. Let's talk about his manager, trainer, Vinny Vecchioni. Vin Vecchioni was a consummate boxing professional. He really understood the ins and outs of the boxing in a very sophisticated way. He learned that from my friend Al Braverman, who was a great, great fight fixer. And Vecchioni constructed a career because he didn't have money. So he had to manufacture a way to maneuver this game but limited fighter. And... Um, he did that by astute matchmaking and fixing and making connections, political connections, whatever it took. Vinny had second mortgaged his house in order to support Peter's career and was finally paying off. And Peter, who averaged just around $40 for his previous fights, was about to get his first real payday. Tyson is getting a reported $25 million. If he wins, so what? I have no idea how much money that fight generated, but I know that there was a million dollar bet, and I know that that was not an even money bet. So uh, somebody made 10 million or more on it. Mike Tyson is now a 15 to one favorite. Many are simply wondering how long. How long will it take for Tyson to end it tonight given the opposition? Vinny Vecchioni with last minute instructions for McNeely. The bet I know about, I was down in Puerto Rico and I got a phone call from somebody who I vaguely knew, but I didn't know well, who said, I just thought you should know somebody just made a million dollar bet that this fight doesn't go out of the first round. I thought you should know about it. And that was it. It turns out it was not a first round bet, it was a 90 second bet. So. Now, Vinny Vecchioni's in the ring as well. The corner. That's Vinny Vecchioni's manager. His manager. What's going on here? Said that was it. The fight is over, surely. Vin Vecchioni stepped between the ropes at 89 seconds to force a disqualification. That is black and white in our room. They pulled him out. The corner jumped in and stopped the fight. Now, you know, that's been seen a lot of different ways. And the cornerman come in and called it all off. Well, that really was played weird. I mean, McNeely was in trouble, but he certainly didn't look as if and that, is that it. was the end of the argument, did he? Peter, first of all, were you ready to continue and did you want to stop? Uh, I was definitely ready to continue, as you saw. Are, are you aggravated with, with Vinny for no, stopping the fight? No, I, I love this guy. Why'd you stop it? Why'd you do it? I just thought that uh, this young fighter's 26 years old. He's got a long way to go. And uh, now if uh, that's... Yeah, we can't cry now. It's over. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's done. We can't go back in there and do it over again. It's done. I'm going to say that all I have for Vin Vecchioni for having done that is admiration. The kind of nerve it takes to do something like that, it, to me, is just incredibly impressive. And I wound up getting paid really well for that fight by, by Vecchioni. Think about it. Here's an event that generated more income than any other event in the history of sports. I mean, and it's not just for the event itself. It's all the ancillary money that it brought in from gambling, from hotel revenue. You're talking about something that generated an astonishing amount of money and allowed there to be more money down the line. 
I trained my boy McNeely to go toe-to-toe with the champ, and he did for 89 seconds. He didn't back down from any combinations thrown at him, and he ain't backing down from this one. The new one-two combination cheese and pepperoni stuffed crust pizza. Hey, McNeely, how many slices am I If you officially call that result into question, you're calling the motor that moves boxing into question. And you're, you're closing down your major revenue source to make a philosophical point. Well, you know, fuck that. Talk about you know, Why did you have to get out of boxing? I can't talk about that. Charles, listen, I, I've been having a little problem. I, uh, as uh, What I'll say is that I was doing business with some very, very bad people, and some bad things happened. Uh, if I don't hear from you in two weeks, we'll have to uh, resolve this uh, in a different way. Uh, there are people that don't want to get angry at me, and there are statute of limitations considerations. Uh, I really hope that we can resolve this the right way. Did you feel like you were in danger? I, I know, know for a fact I was. So you just cut ties, or had, was it a clean break? <sighs> what can I talk about? I, 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 I could talk about a little of it. I could talk about a little of it. I can't talk about much of it. As I said, some bad things happened, and... Uh, I know you were in Puerto Rico, Chris told me. There were people who were looking for me. Guys who could do, could certainly do things. The only, you know, I got I got out of it because the guy who was hired to kill me liked me, and he said, "You better take care of this." Uh, I really don't want to go into this any further. What he said is, "Look, I, I don't want to do it, but you know, if if they send me, I'm going to." Uh, I mean, if I have to take a trip to Puerto Rico and we can discuss this, that's that's entirely up to you. And so what happened next? Once again, Al Braverman, Don King's director of boxing, was a very, very good friend, brokered a deal where we met. I flew in from Puerto Rico. And he brokered a deal where we sat down and he said, look, Don King can do a lot for your guy. And we're willing to. But this bullshit stops here and now. And nobody looks for anybody anymore. And that's the end of it. If that doesn't happen, your kid won't fight anywhere in the world. And if he does fight anywhere in the world, I promise you, you will wish that he hadn't. It's up to you guys. That was that. I never stopped playing music, ever, even during all this stuff. There's not much interest in my playing, although it's really what I do best. I mean, I, I, th- I think I'm the best improvising piano player in the world. <laughs> That's the fight thing. I'm competing. I'm the champion. But, but, you know, what I do is difficult, and there's no market for it. I couldn't do everything I needed to do in music just by playing music. And... I had reached the point where I couldn't play what I needed to play just using musical language exclusively. And I thought there was a, there's got to be a way that people can 
except a hybrid that's not music, that's not text, it's not spoken word, it's some other thing. And I thought, all right, well, I've got all these answering machine messages. They're all real. They're all from real people, you know, and they're from everybody from gangsters to champions to managers to promoters. Um, you know, and partially I kept them for reasons of self-preservation. I thought, maybe I can do this piece that articulates what the boxing business is like. The project called Hope Springs Eternal. They're very, very radical remixes done in the studio. There's one that's entirely about fight fixing. One has to do with the way the boxing business is structured between fighters and managers and promoters. It's a kind of hierarchical uh, meditation. One has to do with a former world champion named Freddie Norwood and these seemingly neurological problems that he might or might not have had. Yes, hello, Mr. Farrell. This is Tasha Robinson, Frederick's fiance. Uh, and one is a death threat. Uh, I mean, if I have to take a trip to Puerto Rico and we can discuss this, that's, that's entirely up to you. I've been a hustler a lot in my life, a lot. And it's only maybe in the last decade that I work with all of my resources not to see weakness and not to, not to, uh, not to take advantage of it. Very difficult. But why is it hard? Because I see it so easily. You know, it's like, it's like, but what, you seeing it's one thing, but acting on it's another. Why, why, is, why does it bother you to act on it now? Why does it did back then? I'm not sure I can tell you why. I'm not sure if I know. Um, I saw some mysterious things. I don't know. I saw, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not voodoo or anything. You know, it's not mumbo jumbo, but um, I was living out in the, in the mountains. I was living in Puerto Rico, rural Puerto Rico. The mob guys were looking for me. Yeah, so that's where I wound up. I had a bunch of dogs, five wild dogs, and I had five dogs that I brought in from the States. These are animals I love very, very dearly. And the dogs who were brought in from the States contracted some kind of virus, you know, that, that the wild dogs were somehow immune to. And a couple of them died horribly one night. Suddenly there was a pool of blood. And one of them, we rushed to the hospital and he didn't make it. Horrible night, terrible thing. Still one of the things that bothers me most in the world. And the vet, said to me, I want to show you something. And he took me outside, and there was a farm van. We were transporting animals. 
and he opened up the van, and in the van, there was a two-headed calf, an adolescent, who was alive and well. And the calf looked at me, two heads, and it radiated this vitality. It was as if it was talking. It might as well have been talking. I want to live. I want to live. That's it. And I understood the vitality in things in a way that I never had before. There's this really, really profound force. I mean, I mean it's got nothing to do with religion. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's a sort of life force, you know? And I just, I thought, maybe there are things I've, I do that I don't want to do anymore. And, you know, I don't want to make too big a deal about any of this. And this, you know, this is slow in coming. This took me a long time and it didn't happen overnight. But I thought, okay, well, you know, in a, in a way we're all animals. We're all vulnerable in ways that I sort of didn't want to acknowledge before. I mean, nobody nobody thinks of themselves as a bad person. Nobody, you know, People really are just trying to live their lives as much as possible. So I, I decided if, if I could live with more equanimity. That's what I would do, you know? And that's what I've been trying to do. Um, and, and, the, and, and it's partially seeing people as more like animals. It's not, it's not a good answer. You know, there's no sort of logical, okay, well, you'd been a bad guy and then you saw this thing and now you're gonna be a good guy. That didn't happen. I love boxing. There's no question I love boxing. But, you know, I, I don't like to use terms like immoral. I don't think boxing's immoral. It's amoral. But many, many more bad things happen in boxing than good things. And very few boxers get out of boxing okay. And although I tried my best to look out for my fighters and I tried to be as, as ethical uh, an agent for boxing as I could. In a sense, it can't be done. If you're involved in it in an active way as part of your profession, you are going to cause damage to people's lives. It's inevitable. I think at one point you just decide you're in or you're out. And if you're, you know, if you're out, you're out. And if you're in, you're in without trying to con yourself into believing that you're party to something that's morally defensible. And I don't try to do that anymore. A lot of what I did when I was younger, certainly in terms of victimization, I was able to construct a narrative that allowed me to rationalize what I was doing. I've got nothing. They've got everything. I've had a tough life. I'm, you know, I'm angry. I have a right to be angry. And, you know, those are convenient. You know, and they work. But, you know, they're not true. They're not true. I used having a lack of options, you know, as, as a kind of justification for doing whatever I felt like doing. I've got all kinds of options. And the thing is, I always did have all kinds of options. 
in, in the long run, it's healthier to try and see things from every perspective than just from your own. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a con artist, the difference is you see all the angles and you're only concerned with one. <laughs> Life is a lot better. That's justification right there. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still, I mean, I'm not an angel. Well, but I, you know, you took advantage of someone. Well, I mean, look, in a sense, in a sense, I'm, I'm, okay, I mean, I just did another radio show where I said a bunch of things that I, you know, words that were put in my mouth, certain ones I, I didn't want to be, but certain ones I thought I sort of weighed them and thought, okay, I can live with this, I can live with that. Those are all business decisions for my own advantage. I'm certainly going to do it again. I mean, I'm about to deal, I'm dealing with people in, in television. But that's what it is, you know. I have to say, I feel really comfortable talking with you right now, but it makes me wonder, yeah. how, are, how are you leading me astray? You know, it's, it's a great, look, I, I, I have a friend who's a great, great writer. And he came to hear one of my concerts. And he wrote a, an article about it afterwards. And he said, I was really, you know, impressed and moved. And then I thought, am I getting hustled? Because I know Charles and I know that's what he did. And this is in regard to my piano playing. It's a very abstruse language. So he thinks, oh, maybe it's just, you know, double talk. Maybe it's just nonsense. You know, he went and talked to two experts. And, of course, the experts he talked to were imbeciles. But they both said, no, 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 he's real. He's real. I mean, you know, he's a great player, you know. And that was uh, enough, apparently, to, you know, <laughs> to placate him. You know, but he went to idiots. Talk to my colleagues, you know, and see what they have to say. But also just use your ears. So I don't know. I mean, am I hustling you? I I'm going to say no. But isn't that, <laughs> isn't that what a hustler would say? That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was a co-production with the Everything is Stories podcast. The show was produced by Mike Martinez, Garrett Crow, Tyler Ray, Brendan Baker, and myself, Nick Vanderkolk, with sound design by Brendan Baker, and special thanks to Karen Duffin. You can find out more about Charles Farrell and his work at our website, loveandradio.org. We also have some excellent photos up that were taken by Ben Grimmie. Love and Radio, of course, is a production of Radiotopia, the all-killer, no-filler conglomerate that is just too good to be called a podcast network. Don't call it a podcast network. Seriously, don't call it a podcast network. So I've been meaning to ask you to write a review in iTunes, since it helps other people discover the show. The thing is, obviously, I love reading positive reviews. I read everything. They make me feel warm and fuzzy and I'm super appreciative of everyone who's written a nice review, but I don't find them nearly as interesting as the negative ones. So for instance, this is, this is one we got recently um, from someone who'd listened to the Super Chat episode. 
Whoever had this idea was an idiot. This isn't entertainment, it's just trash. But perhaps that's where our culture is today. Before he played the 30 minutes of the sex hotline, he proceeded with a warning that it was a soft NC-17. However, it would have been more appropriate to rate it as triple X. It was as explicit as sex talk can be to include body fluids and fetishes. It was vile, repulsive, and just sickening. See, I find that way more interesting. So here's how you and I are going to split the difference. Fuck, I have spiders crawling all over me. Excuse me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to log into iTunes and write a five-star review. Except instead of listing what you like about the show, I want you to include a review of your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend or ex-wife, ex, you know, whatever. It can be positive or negative. Either is totally cool. You could compare and contrast them to the show. Just throwing that out there. But you don't have to. Just make it weird and make it interesting. Sound good? Let's make this happen. I want to read these things. And of course, thank you for listening.